listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message by John Mark McMillan. I believe that Jesus is in the business of removing barriers. I believe the ministry of Jesus was, is, and will always be about removing barriers and building bridges. Restoration, reconciliation, reconnection, these words are the words that best describe the work of Jesus to me. And the work of the disciple, the apprentice, those who practice the Christian way, the Christian, the Christian, the way of Christ, is to partner with Christ to remove barriers and build bridges still today. Our work is the work of restoration, reconciliation, and reconnection. If you would read this with me, Romans 8. I'm reading from the New Living Translation because I really like the way this landed this morning. And I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither our fears for today nor our worries about tomorrow. Not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. You can sit down. And I'm going to read this one over you. 1 John 4, 7. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. John likes to say that a lot. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. All right. I'm going to be teaching from John 2 today. I know that some of this we've, um, has, has, <laughs> has already been preached. We've gone through some of these scriptures, but I really felt several weeks ago like this is what I was supposed to preach from. And so I, I think I bring some, let me just put it this way. There's a lot here. Okay. There's a lot we can talk about. All right. First of all, in John chapter 2, there are two things that happen in John chapter 2. There are two stories or episodes in John chapter 2. There is Jesus turning the water into wine. And there is Jesus cleansing the temple. And something that's interesting to note is all the other gospels list Jesus turning water into wine at the beginning. And list Jesus cleansing the temple at the end. But John puts them together. I don't know that um, it's because John disagrees with his friends about when it happened. I think it more has to do with the fact that John sees a connection between these two episodes, and that's why he puts them back to back. I don't want to read all of this because it's going to take a long time. And I think you've heard these stories, but I'm just going to sort of recap. Because, you know, Jesus goes to a wedding, and they run out of wine. 
And it's, it bothers Mary. And so Mary comes to Jesus and says, hey, Jesus, is there anything you can do about this? Jesus says, hey, my time hasn't come. Meaning, hey, I'm not the groom. The groom pays for the wine. Why are you bothering me? I'm not the one getting married, right? You know, but um, he decides to, it, it obviously bothers his mom. He decides to help his mother out. So he calls for some wash pots, tells him to fill them up with water, and then uh, they dip the wash pots and take it out, and boom, it's wine, right? It's wine. Story number one, you probably all know that story. Story number two. Jesus walks into the temple, he makes a whip, and he drives out the money changers. He drives out the um, the people who are selling animals. He drives out the animals, and he uh, enters into this discourse about what the temple really is. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up, he says. That was his argument. The Jews said, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus said, Tear this place down in three days, I'll build it back up, right? These two stories, we know these stories really well, right? Has everyone heard these two stories before? Has anyone not heard these stories? It's okay if you haven't. Well, we know these stories really well. Okay, so Jesus is, if you'll let me talk this way, please um, hear me right, but Jesus is both a miracle worker and a little bit of a magician, right? Miracles are the work of supernatural feet, and magic is a work of misdirection. Jesus is performing miracles and magic at the same time. Often the miracles are very the very distraction he uses to misdirect your attention because he's trying to tell you something in his misdirection. Let me show you what I mean. Let's look again at the famous water to wine story. Take a look at verse 2-6. Have you ever thought much about the actual vessels Jesus used to make wine? 2.6, I'm just going to read it to you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. There were wash pots used for the purification ritual. Ritual wash pots didn't actually clean you. They just represented a mindset that distinguished between what was clean and what was not clean, which, by the way, Jesus never paid much attention to. Jesus was constantly breaking the rules for the sake of human beings who had been deemed unclean. Jesus touched the lepers. He touched the dead. He associated with prostitutes. He conversed with Samaritans. He partied with corrupt political figures. He healed people on the Sabbath He commended the woman with the issue of blood for touching his garment, which was also considered to be a thing that would make you unclean. All these things were beyond taboo. Many of them were literally seen as unlawful or sinful according to the tradition. But can you believe people actually told Jesus it was illegal to heal on the Sabbath? Sir, you're going to have to give your healing back. Your healing is illegal. Do you have papers for that healing, sir? You gotta know there was an ancient, an anxious servant somewhere who had a problem with this water to wine business. I can hear someone with a squeaky voice saying, so if the wash pots are full of wine now, then how will we perform the cleansing ritual? How are we gonna tell the difference between who's clean and who's not clean? You just see Jesus in the corner raise a glass and say, cheers y'all.
What if they walk in and they're not clean? And now the pots are full of wine. What are we going to do? And Jesus is like, pour them a glass. That's what you're going to do. He took the tools used to segregate and separate and use them in a way that brings people together. This was Jesus' first recorded miracle, by the way. Do you think he's trying to tell us something? Jesus is in the business of removing barriers. All right, let's look again at the second story. People love this story about Jesus cleansing the temple because it shows Jesus all hyped up. And maybe they feel like it justifies their own anger because they get to see Jesus looking mad. But this didn't seem to happen much with Jesus. He was usually cool-headed. Remember when Peter cut that guy's ear off with a sword and Jesus just picked it up and put it back on? Cool as a cucumber. Jesus was chill most of the time, right? So we like it when he's not chill because it sort of makes us okay with our non-chillness, right? Sort of makes we take that one detail and we allow ourselves to be super angry sometimes, right? But that's not Jesus' normal uh, mode of operation. So something really important must have been happening for Jesus to act so seemingly out of character. But once again, let's take a look at the details. Because the details really matter. Jesus came in with a whip. And ran off the animals and he turned over the money changers tables and he says something very interesting. He says, you've made my father's house a den of thieves. And in Matthew's telling of this story, Jesus quotes Isaiah 56. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. You know, we tend to focus on the den of thieves part because it's dramatic. We love to, uh, you know, <laughs> stick it to the people, you know. It's easy to get caught up in the visual of coins flying everywhere and the sound they make when they hit the ground. But in all the ruckus, we can miss a very important detail. Money changers were not the ones selling animals. The money changers weren't selling you anything. Have you ever gone on a trip to another country and you land and there's all these little booths and they have these things listing, whatever your currency is, this is how much it's going to cost for you to exchange your currency for the currency of the country you just landed in so that you can spend money, right? And if you notice, they take a percentage when you do that, right? Just frustrating because I've made money in other countries. And sometimes they take 25% when I take my money from country A back to the United States. It's all good. I'm not bitter at all. New Zealand was a beautiful country. But, <laughs> but I paid for that one. <laughs> right. They were the ones who converted the currency, right? See, if you wanted to offer a sacrifice, you didn't happen to have a dove or a bull or a sheep in your back pocket, then you would have to purchase one. The problem is that if you didn't have the correct currency, then they wouldn't sell one to you. If you didn't have the right kind of money, if you earn your wages from working with or selling goods to people outside of the tradition or the wrong kind of tradition, or especially if you weren't even Jewish... If you weren't in their system, so to speak, then you would have to make change. And they were going to make it really expensive. They were going to make it hard on you. 
They had constructed a barrier to keep people like you out of the temple. They had a monopoly on God, and Jesus was not having it. They had a monopoly on God, and Jesus was not going to have it. So when Jesus flips the table over and says, my house will be a house of prayer, the focus is not on house of prayer. That part is obvious. The focus is on for all kinds of people. Of course, five minutes later, they all probably set their stuff back up and carried on with business as usual. But Jesus basically says, it's not the real temple anyway. My body is the temple. And we know that the people, the church, are the body of Christ. Jesus is almost saying, if you keep the people out of the temple, then you have no temple at all. Because the people are the temple. Jesus was in the business of removing barriers. So I have to believe that John wrapped these stories together because they are saying the same thing. Jesus is uncomfortably, from the beginning, uncomfortably opening doors and redrawing lines around what it means to know God. And it didn't didn't stop after his death, resurrection, and ascension. In Acts 10, we hear about a Roman centurion. His name is Cornelius, who was devout. He feared God, he prayed, and he gave money to the poor. An angel appeared to him and told him to contact Peter. Right? The problem was that it was not lawful for Peter to associate with a Roman, much less enter his home or eat at his table. Who you ate with in the ancient world was a big deal. For ancient Jews and ancient Christians, it was considered sinful to even enter a Roman's house, and even worse, to eat with them, right? And so much so that when Peter returned, his Jewish Christian brothers were upset with him for doing it. Upset with him for doing it. Until Peter explained this vision. In Acts 10, It says, and Peter became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Anyone ever fell asleep hungry? (laughs) Happens to me sometimes. And he saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending. Being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it, there were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him. Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times. And the thing was taken up to heaven. And Peter wakes up and he's like, what in the world? And he wakes up and he hears that this Cornelius... This unclean person is asking him to come and do unclean things with him. Walk into his house, eat, right? And Peter would have said no. He would have refused because it would have been sinful had he not had this vision. And this vision is good for us, y'all. I I would have no opportunity to know Jesus if it weren't for this right here. I would have been out had this barrier not been eliminated. 
I do not fit the description of the person who is supposed to be associating with Peter and the disciples. I would have been out. I would have been out. But thank God Jesus was still in the business of removing barriers. The scandal wasn't that Jesus made wine, but that he did it in the ritual watch pots. The scandal wasn't that Jesus said his house was a house of prayer, but that it was a place for all people. The scandal wasn't that Peter ate bacon in a dream, but that he stepped into the house of the unclean. Do you see a pattern here? All of these stories are about letting people in and breaking the established laws to do so. But Jesus wasn't breaking rules for fun or to stick it to the man. He broke rules when they got in the way of something he deemed far more important. Jesus loved people. I want to tell one more story. Let's reach back into the Old Testament. You all know the story of Jonah and the whale, but there's something that a lot of people miss. The story should be Jonah and the plant. That's the real story. Let's read the end, the part that gets left out of all the kids' books, and you'll see what I'm saying. But it displeased Jonah. Do you remember, actually, Jonah gets swallowed up by the fish. The fish spits him up, and he goes to Nineveh, and he preaches to Nineveh, and they repent. And so this impending doom that's supposed to come upon them is avoided because Jonah went to the Ninevites and preached the gospel. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly as he was angry. So Jonah's mad that the people repented because he wanted them to be destroyed, by the way. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is it not this what I say, uh, oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, oh Lord, please take my life from me for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? So Jonah said the reason he ran away in the first place is because he knew God was going to spare these people. And he didn't want God to spare these people. That's why he was running away. So Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. I don't know if you ever watch Bear Grylls, but you know he's in the wilderness and he builds a booth. A booth sounds whatever, but it's like sticks on top of each other, right? That's what Jonah did. He went out of the city, sat east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Jonah loved this plant. I have some stoner friends. I could have made a funny joke right there, but I'm going to refrain. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant, so it withered. 
When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, It is better for me to die than live. Here again, second time in the chapter. It's better for me to die than live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right? They leave that part out of the kids' books. Because the whale is more exciting, but the worm was more effective. Jonah loved his plant more than he loved 120,000 people. See, Jonah isn't a story about a man who gets swallowed by a whale, but about a man who was swallowed up by systems, structures, and ideas of righteousness that he loved more than the people. The fish was a manifestation of his inward reality. Because of it, his plant withered. Because of it, the thing that he loved withered. And you know, we all have plants too. Beautiful structures that comfort us, shield us, guide us, and protect us. They're the rules, codes, and creeds. That we live by to make community and civilization even possible. There are traditions, religion, our worship, our rituals, our spiritual practices. We need these systems, rules, and laws. God knows that we need a grid to live by and disciplines to make us healthy, functional people. We need strong ideas about what's good and evil. We need clear, a clear conscience for what's generally right and wrong. Without these things in our lives, we descend into chaos. Try chaos for a while and see how long you last. You'd be like Bear Grylls in the woods with no training. You would die so fast. You would die so fast without these things. Even worse, take these things away from society. Take away any ideas of right and wrong and good and bad. You know, you can see this in history. You see this happen in history and they descend into war, violence, and genocide. The wheels come off. When you don't have these things in place, our religious rules are like tracks for our trains, bones for our bodies, the operating systems to our hard drives, the foundations to the houses where we live. They make things work, but they themselves are not the point. They are not righteousness. And when our structures... When our structures get in the way of loving people, God sends the worm. The 
the worm of discomfort and our beautiful plant will wither and expose us to the burning sun of another kind of chaos. Why? Because Jesus is in the business of removing barriers. But here's the beautiful part. Jesus himself is the bridge. Jesus is the wine from the wedding. And he has enough for everyone. Jesus is the temple. And Jesus took the whip of cleansing upon himself. That's when people want to go in and turn tables over and crack the whip. and Say, you could turn the tables over and crack the whip. If you're willing to be the table and take the whip like Jesus did. Angry tweets is not the same as turning tables. You're just high-fiving your friends who feel the same way. But Jesus took the whip of cleansing upon himself. Jesus made change for you. He paid your feet. Jesus spent three nights like in the belly of the whale, and he was the fruit that withered on the tree like Jonah's plant. He felt the worm of discomfort for you so that you could live in the shade of his love. Jesus didn't just serve the wine. He became the wine. Jesus didn't just cleanse the temple. He became the temple. Jesus didn't just tell Peter to rise and eat. Jesus became the meal. Jesus didn't just tell Jonah to consider to the people. Jesus became the people. He became us. Emmanuel, God with us, the empathetic God who suffers. Jesus is not only removing barriers, he's also the bridge. But there is a narrow path to fellowship with Christ. As you've done unto the least of these, so you've done unto me. The path to fellowship with Christ is a narrow one, and that path is love. Love is the only path to fellowship with Christ. And sometimes Jesus will only be loved vicariously. Sometimes you can only love Jesus by loving the people that he loves. So here's kind of my closing statement. Throughout this message, you probably think that I've been talking to you about barriers we put to keep other people out. And you wouldn't be entirely wrong. But I think there's also some misdirection here. I think I'm trying to perform a little bit of magic in this. And maybe the barriers aren't about keeping other people out. Maybe the barriers are keeping us out. Maybe all the rules that Jesus broke, he broke for you. You know, we live in a dangerous time. People will play on your fears and anxieties to manipulate you for their selfish and often terrible purposes. We need to pray daily for God to teach us how to empathize and love those people who we think are so different from us. If the church doesn't do her job, if we cease to be the moral compass, if we lose our flavor, how will we be the salt of the earth? If we don't champion love, dignity, and compassion, who will? The American church is experiencing a mass exodus right now. And even even secular statistics show that people don't become less tribalistic or more compassionate when they leave church. Studies show they become more tribalistic and less compassionate when they leave
You guys okay? And some people might be sitting here thinking, man, my Republican brother needs to hear this message. Nope, you do. Other people might be sitting here thinking, man, my snowflake daughter-in-law needs to hear this message. Nope, you do. This isn't a side-choosing moment. This is a Jesus moment. This is a Jesus moment. So I was taking my kids to school the other day. Um... My kids go to this really cool school. It's 60% Hispanic. Um, and so I think it's awesome. My kids get to interface with all these different cultures and learn some of the language. And it's a really awesome thing to know multiple languages for a number of reasons. It's a really beautiful school. My kids have had a blast. It's been their best school experience. Um, and we're going to the orientation and it's kind of set back in a neighborhood and there's some road construction. And so the traffic is so bad. It's one of those things, you know, when you like have cars parked on both sides of the road and you're going this way and they're coming this way and one of you has to stop and back out, except you can't see around turns. There's so many people parked and there's only one lane that you whole whole streams of traffic are having to back out at the same time and we're having to negotiate who moves and to the point where some people are just pulling over and parking and they get out and just walk to the school for orientation so we finally did that and we're walking and my kids see some of their friends and um and and we're all sort of walking together it's you know it's me and a couple other parents and a bunch of kids there's not really a sidewalk and it's not too dangerous the cars are moving really slow so we're kind of walking right next to the cars and i'm walking and um i hear a guy stop behind me in a white van and he rolls his window down he pulls the cigarette out of his mouth he says how do you feel about your kids going to school with all these immigrants Trying to decide which version of the story I want to tell you. <laughs> Said, I am an immigrant, bro. Where are you from? Said, I'm from the United States of America. I said, No, you're not. Said, We're all immigrants here. If you don't like immigrants, go back to where you came from. Because we are only immigrants here. We only came from somewhere else. And I, um, the conversation continued (laughs) as we walked slowly and as the van slowly and it, the volume got louder. And louder and louder until he, he was far enough away. That I couldn't hear all of his words, and it, and I I didn't I, I it just kind of came out of me. I didn't plan that, and then immediately I felt super ashamed because my kids had seen me lose it. They'd heard me treat another individual with some level of disrespect. And um, 
Later on, I began to feel better about that. I thought, if they're going to see me angry, it's not over them playing too much Nintendo or because they woke me up too early in the morning. They saw me angry because I didn't like the way that man was talking to a bunch of elementary school children. Because you realize that's what he did. He really didn't care what I thought about it. He just wanted all of them to hear him ask that question. Right? But then you take it another step further. I think, how broken does a person have to be to be intimidated by a bunch of elementary school children? And it's kind of funny at first, and then it's kind of sad. And it's been a long time since I got that angry about something. I lost my cool. You know, I used to do that. On a semi-regular basis. I don't know if most of you know this, but I used to have an anger problem. My wife used to say, why? Why did you leave the house looking for a fight? Not because she and I were fighting, but, you know, and I literally would uh, daydream. Like fantasize about someone cutting in front of me at line at the store. And I I was rehearsing, like, exactly what I was going to say to them. And I used to rehearse, like, how to, like make people cry when I got in an argument with them. You know, and several times when someone cut me off in traffic, I followed them for a long way. In fact, one time we, uh, there's a guy getting beat up and me and my friends decided we were going to help him out. And we, we chased the other guy down and they, um, pulled a gun on us. And they said, and they said, we said, Hey man, we just want to know why you're beating up that kid. Cause like that dude stole my weed. So you need to mind your own business, right? But I realized like my anger was ruining my life. I would get angry in the morning. And I don't know if you realize when you get angry and what happens when those levels go up, you, they, you bottom out, right? And you are half a person for the rest of the day. And you can't work well. You can't get your job done. You can't treat the people you love very well. And no one taught me this. But over time, the Lord started to deal with me about my anger. And he started to make me, he started to have me do these exercises. So imagine the man in the van before the cigarette and before his long blonde hair, before his scruffy voice. Right Before he could drive. Imagine him as a teenager. Imagine him as a child. Imagine that he woke up. In the morning, and there was no one to make cereal for him because his parents had been up drinking all night long and they were passed out. Imagine he had a little sister who died of cancer and there was no one there to really walk him through or explain to him how to deal with his feelings, right? And imagine that his father lost his job and his father became an alcoholic because his father didn't feel like he had what it took to take care of his own family. And so he descended into chaos and his children felt the weight of his dysfunction. We really like to create caricatures of people. We really like to create caricatures of people here in the book. Jonah hates these people and the Lord says, Jonah, 
There's 120,000 people in that city who don't know their left hand from their right. Have you made a decision about all 120,000 of those people? But I have loved my new empathetic life. I don't feel weak at all. I will still kick you in the neck. I do listen to Pavarotti and cry for recreation, but I'm 6'4", 220, and I will kick you in the neck if I have to. But I don't like to. I've decided I love loving people. I've decided I really enjoy it. I've decided when that lady at the grocery store is rude to me, what I do is I use my imagination. I don't know what's going on with her, but I use my imagination. I wonder, you know, I wonder if her husband just died. And some people are too poor to stop going to work when their husband dies. What if her son just got shipped off? What if he couldn't afford to go to college and his only real choice in life is that he needed to join the military and he was really too young and too insecure to do it, but he, what if he just got shipped off and she wasn't going to see him for years and didn't know what kind of person he was going to be when he came back? Who knows? You don't. That's the point. And we're really good at using our imaginations for imagining this terrible caricature of a person. And often we're not so good at using our imaginations to wonder why they were ever that way. But this is the Jesus way. I know you're rude to me at the well. But I also know... You've had a bunch of husbands, and they all let you down. And the guy you're with right now is a jerk, and he's probably abusive. So next time, ask me for water. I got a little trick with water, by the way. (laughs) If you would, close your eyes. What barriers does the Lord want to remove from your heart? The unforgiveness that uh, sent you into chaos. The conversations you've had with somebody who's not there. You know, it's okay to be mad. Jesus was mad like once. But being angry is like a wound. It's okay to bleed and hurt when you get hit, you break your ankle. But it's also kind of silly to hope your ankle stays broken. So you've been hurt and it's okay. It's okay that you've been hurt. You've been mad and it's okay. Some of you haven't allowed yourself to be angry or hurt. Some of you haven't allowed yourself to cry. That's okay. You should allow yourself. But then now it's time to allow the Lord to come in and to bring forgiveness. The best way to defeat an enemy is to make a friend. 
And there are lots and lots of beautiful people out there who disagree with you vehemently about things, who are still beautiful people and just a little bit confused. And you know what? You might be a little bit confused too. So it's, it's all good, right? No one's asking you not to continue to stand up for what you believe. But grace and truth, grace and truth, they have to work together. They have to work together. So maybe visualize someone if you want to do this. (laughs) Maybe this is hard. Let's practice empathy. The last person who offended you. How did they grow up? How did they hurt? What happened to them? Who spoke negativity into their lives when they were young? Who abused them? Most abusers are victims. Can you see them in the way they hurt? Can you forgive them and still not be okay with the way they acted? Maybe there's some even deeper things. Maybe there's some people you're offended who didn't even do anything to you. Maybe you're projecting an offense upon an entire group of people because of one small interaction. And I know that sounds dumb, but we all do it when we're young, and it's something we have to grow out of. When you're young, you think everyone is like the people that you meet. And when you're young, you tend to believe Uh, Most of what you hear. And this works our way into the fabric of who we are. And it takes a lot of unraveling. But Lord, would you do it? Would you be the wine? Would you serve us the wine today? Would you serve us the wine of grace? The wine of relationship? The wine of community? The wine of revelation? Thank you, Lord. Amen. (laughs) You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.